This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. So good evening, everyone, and welcome again to San Francisco Zen Center's online Zendo and Buddha Hall. as Kodo said, my name is Kyoshin Wendy Lewis. And um, this evening, I'm going to be talking about the end of the year as a beginning. Uh, I often give a talk at the end of the year. So um, there's something about the transition that I really appreciate. Um, there, as you know, many of you know, there are lots of traditions and different calendars uh, for something that would be called the new year. So um, in the Judaic tradition, there's uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is New Year's, and then 10 days later, Yom Kippur, uh, the Day of Atonement. And the way that works is um, the end of the year is a time for repentance, atonement, and forgiveness. And this is both a um, regarding monetary debts and then personal disagreements and difficulties. So what happens is um, God writes your um, fate for the next year on Rosh Hashanah, and then 10 days later on Yom Kippur, it's sealed. So um, this is um, a com- the, the changing of the year is accompanied by the sound of a ram's horn called the shofar. And what the verse, I guess you would say, that goes with that is sleepers, wake up from your slumber, examine your ways and repent and remember your creator. So transition, you're noticing how, what you're doing with your life. So um, in the Chinese New Year tradition, there's uh, rituals that include deep cleaning the home and then um, setting off fireworks before there's a celebratory meal. And um, at this time, the time of New Year's, there's more fireworks set off than at any other time of the year. And then in Japan, Uh, New Year's is now celebrated based on the Western calendar, but there's also the Lunar New Year and similarities to the Chinese celebration where there's house cleaning and special foods. Um, And we include that in our celebration by eating buckwheat noodles, which is one of the traditional foods. And at midnight on December 31st in Japan, they... The, at, at Buddhist temples, and we do this also, the bell is rung 108 times. And one of the symbols of that is for the 108 earthly temptations. Again, we're reminded of some sort of our relationships with each other. That's sort of where morality comes from, our, you know, how we care for ourselves and others. And um, they also the bell is sounded as, um, you know, calling uh, for this renunciation of worldly desires. 
so these all of these celebrations or acknowledgement of the turning of the year and this is true in a western tradition are accompanied by noise loud noise and the purpose of the noise is partly to call the attention of god or the gods um, and to call the attention of all of us to this transition to um, paying attention to the passing of time and how we're living our lives. And also it's to chase away evil and demons. There's also an agricultural aspect to New Year's celebrations. And um, in the Western tradition, uh, the big feasting was based on eating the last food that, uh, that was in storage before it went bad and then drinking um, beer and mead and those sort of things when they were at their most, you know, their later stages of fermentation. So they were much stronger. So we think of, you know, we're like at New Year's in the Western tradition, there's lots of drinking, but it's actually, that's the source of it is this, just because the everything was so fermented by then. So um, at the end of the year, again, you're familiar with this, you know, there's a tendency to review our lives and what has happened over the previous year, you know, its impact, its meaning personally, and, you know, collectively, and um, to consider how we're going to move forward. So, you know, whether it's been a good year, or a not so good year, or a terrible year, um, there's a tradition of you know, making our New Year's resolutions, planning to finish projects, uh, hoping for things to improve, or, you know, thinking of improving one's health or um, wealth and happiness. Those are things that often go together with New Year celebrations. But um, it actually turns out that being too positive or optimistic is not as great as we think. Our brains are actually wired to respond to our environment with enough critique of reality to learn new ways to address challenges and problems, particularly related to survival in a historic sense, but also um, to refresh our viewpoints and our sympathies and our understanding. So uh, this critique is stimulated, not so much by, you know, things going well, as it is by various types of discomfort, such as, you know, sadness, fear, loss, guilt, um, and apparently feeling a bit gloomy actually encourages us to be more generous to others. So this, you know, of course, is nuanced by things like chronic pain and systemic injustice and similar things like that. Um, yet there seems to be evidence that being overly optimistic can impede healing and recovery and a bit of pessimism and expression of anger can help prevent 
heart disease and stress-related health conditions, as well as to help reduce the time um, required for recovery from illness and surgery. So it's, it's interesting how, like I think of it as kind of almost our lazy way of wanting to be so comfortable and happy and have everything we want and how that turns on us in some way. So, you, you know, you sort of get lethargic and sort of discontent without knowing why. It's just a kind of low energy or something like that. And actually these kind of um, things that happen to us that we might not exactly like are actually stimulating our brain to consider how to respond and how to create some new energy and uh, involvement. So um, I just find it wonderfully mysterious how unconscious we can be about all the things that are going on in our body and mind. There's all these subtle processes are talking to each other, your nervous system, your uh, digestive system, all this stuff. And we're just completely unconscious of it most of the time and it doesn't even need our attention. But all of this is happening and it's affecting us, affecting how we see things, how we respond. So uh, one, um, way I one instance of this that I've experienced or thought about is uh, when you know you're studying or trying to learn something or doing research or writing I've done a lot of these things and so I'm, I've been curious you know like and I read that um, you actually use a lot of caloric energy when you are doing things like that I mean you can sort of imagine that that's the case. But we don't usually think of that so much in terms of something where we're sitting and reading and considering and writing and that sort of thing. We do think of it if we're involved in some sort of physical activity. We think, oh, well, there's a point at which you need to stop or you need to rest so that you can take a, you know, the next lap of your bike ride or something like that and you need to drink water you need something to eat but we don't usually think about it in terms of uh doing something like studying but it really does help if you don't sort of let it be a distraction to drink some water or eat a piece of chocolate or something like that while you're doing these seemingly sedentary um, activities so um I think caring for this body-mind uh, rather than splitting our attention between the body and the mind uh, can actually help in developing um, a productive practice and meditative life. So a significant part of our body-mind is our emotional life and interpretations of our experience. So our New Year's resolutions tend to do emphasize kind of idealized versions of happiness and success and losing weight, that sort of thing. Um, and that's very reasonable and understandable. 
having some goals, having some intentions. You know, you can do that at any time, but we sort of, this is kind of a time where we think about those kind of things, just conventional way. And yet, you know, we're very complex social beings and um, our happiness and success are intertwined with everyone else's and um, with the wishes and expectations that others have that are sometimes in contradiction to ours or very unlike ours. And yet we're all clinging to these ideals of how we would like to be like things to be and what our happiness looks like. So um, recently I um, visited a friend in Carson City, Nevada, and I saw a book about Kit Carson, who um, he's, the, the Carson City is named for him, but he didn't actually live there or um, even visit as far as I could tell, but uh, he was famous. So they used his name to, name their city, uh, like a lot of places are named for people. But the book itself was a historical biography and it's called Blood and Thunder. And this was a term they used to describe these fictional accounts of his life, uh, blood and thunder novels, they called them. And uh, he once kind of wryly commented about one of them, well, those things may have happened, but I wasn't there when they did. <laughs> so they were just these fictional adventure stories. Um, and they described him very unlike the way he actually was. He was a very small uh, person, probably because he grew up poor and um, didn't get a lot of nutrition. But <laughs> anyway, they described him as just you know, big muscular guy and stuff like that. But he was actually born on a fairly poor, poor farm in Missouri. And then he ended up going west to work as a trapper when he was pretty young, a teenager. And then he became an extraordinary guide and tracker. He was friends with Native Americans uh, and Native American tribes particularly the Utes, and his first wife was Native American. And they had two children, um, and she, she died young out in those circumstances. A lot of things can happen, and people died young often. Um, and his second wife was Mexican-Spanish, and he lived in the area of the United States around Texas, and that area that was actually part of Mexico at the time. And he spoke and understood Spanish and several Native American languages he seemed. He had a facility with that. And so he often served as an interpreter. So here is this very complex life. He negotiated between working for the US government, uh, particularly for the military as a guide and interpreter, and also living independently out in the frontier that was very precarious and dangerous. And because of those circumstances, he was often torn 
by his sense of loyalty to the United States, um, to other trappers who he knew and worked with who were from a variety of backgrounds, uh, particularly um, to the Native Americans who he considered to be the true owners of the land that the United States was trying to take from them along with their sort of understanding of and way of life. So our lives often hold um, a fair degree of moral ambiguity. And there are choices we make about how to navigate that ambiguity. Um, and that's usually through the lens of what is most beneficial for ourselves and reflects our own values and benefits those who are like us. So how do we both question that and appreciate it? Uh, one of the main instructions in Buddhism is to examine how the functioning of the mind can be cultivated to the point of ease that is not dependent on circumstances. So the emotional aspect of a spiritual path is referred to as faith. And the social aspect is referred to as morality. And shraddha, which is the word for faith, um, is etymo etymologically <laughs> um, implies the necess necessity of engaging the heart, the center of our life, and the sort of courage, core, heart, core, uh, and willingness to follow a path that includes transformation. So faith has both mental and physical components. For Kit Carson, I think faith was a form of self-confidence and this ability to juggle a bewilderingly complex situation of the meetings and misunderstandings among several cultures, the trappers, as I mentioned, the people who we refer to as settlers, uh, Native American tribes, those living in the Mexican Spanish territories in the US military. All these people he was close to, uh, supported, and also was at, at some kind of odds with uh, off and on. So I think it'd be easy to judge him, you know, from our sort of armchair perspective uh, and how he handled all this, because uh, he sometimes, you know, would guide the um, U.S. military to go and attack Indian tribes and that sort of thing, or Mexican settlers. And then on the other hand, he would do the opposite and was very interesting mix uh, for his reality. Um, but I think people who, my, like my impression of is that um, who, you know, care about fairness in a certain way, like he was concerned, you know, concerned about the devastation of uh, Native American lands and culture. And, um, People like that rarely have a lot of power. Um, it's sort of because of that nuanced, their nuanced sense of reality. Um, and so 
it's hard for them to make a difference in some sort of policy way or um, uh, governmental or legal way, I guess you could call it. So I think his um, morality was both nuanced and hindered by his circumstances. And morality is reflected in the aspect of our New Year's resolutions that asks us to re-examine our decisions, our values, and ideals, and the impact those have on both our well-being and the well-being of others. So the Buddhist proposal requires an effort made by a person, me, you, everyone, um, the result of which is surrender to an insight into non-self. So surrender, though it sounds kind of passive, actually requires a great deal of effort and renunciation, as well as spiritual humor. As we let go of things, it's actually we can see some humor in our clinging, in our fear and so on. Um, so it's kind of an insight that into um, our resistance of our mind and our heart to revelation, particularly because change is inevitable. So our spiritual endeavor begins with awakening and continues through humility and application of mindfulness to awareness of how non-self functions as liberation with a combination of pleasure, relief, and this poignancy. So the Zen master Yamada Muman commented, intrinsic wisdom begins when there is no longer anything strange or unusual. So the strictures and limitations of conventional reality shift into the arena of play, of freedom. So insight into non-self is to no longer base one's life on aspirations, desires, aversions or worldly feelings. So I think, you know, Kit Carson in this, I, you know, I was so surprised to read this historical biography and sort of get this sense of him as a very unusual person, but also unusual in the way he responded to the circumstances of his life. So he was uneducated and illiterate and he only knew those stories of the novels that were written about him because people read them to him, including his children. And um, he lived in the wilderness and learned how to do that in a very respectful way, as well as a very practical way. So he um, always rode mules rather than horses. And he traveled thousands of miles back and forth across the United States because he was very trusted by so many people that they um, asked him to be a courier for a very confidential news going to Washington, D.C. for 
money, for reports, for maps, and all kinds of things. So he just went back and forth and back and forth across the United States. And in the course of all these things, he learned to navigate this world, his world, through being able to read directions and landmarks and have a feel for those things. So this sense that he had, of, I, I had of him as not just taking from his environment and his circumstances, but also listening and observing and learning something about what was going on. <clears throat> and he didn't seem to have any aspirations to fame or power or anything like that. And he actually avoided them as much as he could. And he was known for that wry humor and for not being a big talker. So I thought that um, there's this Zen saying that I think is kind of appropriate to his circumstances. So it's, it goes, before one begins to practice, mountains and mountain mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers as one continues to practice mountains are no longer mountains and rivers are no longer rivers and then <clears throat> mountains are mountains and rivers are rivers again and of course again doesn't mean they're the same as before so you can go into the mountains and then they start to speak to you, if that's the right word. And then, and so they're no longer what they are, and then they are again. So um, I think awareness in that, in that sense of mountains being mountains, then not being mountains, and then being mountains again, it is what emerges as pure wisdom whatever it encounters it sees it for what it is with the without the interference of vexation which is kind of what i how i was interpreting kit carson's relationship to it didn't relate to things in that way in order to be famous or in order to get something out of it that was just the way it worked for him and this incredible wisdom he had this facility with languages, this facility with being able to track, being able to guide uh, people through the wilderness and that sort of thing. This listening and observing ability. So in Buddhism, faith is not about believing or not believing, but a willingness to doubt or question one's preferences and pre prejudices. And part of the reason for that is to open oneself to other views, um, wider realities, that sort of thing, but not in a in a negation and pref and and sort of switching way, but having those things relate to each other. So um, I think that what Buddhism and Zen teach is that the beauty as well as the suffering of the world can only be truly related to 
um, from the perspective that goes beyond our self-centered and self-relating views and preferences and ideals, yet not negating them. And this is the dialectic or conversation of our limited view with these greater workings of reality that we can't completely access, but they're, you know, they're still working and we, we can know that and allow ourselves to listen for that response to us. So in terms of the theme of my talk <laughs> at the end of another year, we can, you know, look backward and forward, I think with deeper intention and awareness and make our vows and our resolutions that can refresh us and the world and offer this sense of beginning again. So this effort is difficult, but it's also playful, as I mentioned. And um, within, it's playful within the workings of emptiness and non-self and the beauty as well as the horror of the world as it is. So I would say, you know, let us dream about the possibility of everyone having food and drink. <laughs> Even that, uh, you know, to celebrate this new year and this wish for a good year and good health to all and to people talking and listening differently to each other and to the world. And I think not to be discouraged by anger and pessimism and anxiety and pain, but to include them as information and, and as hints to an access to information and part of this never ending conversation between our limited view and greater reality. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.